Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing real-world issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with individuals and companies to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. Joining me for our third season in 2024 for episode 19 is Faiza Venzet. Happy New Year, Faiza. How are you? Happy New Year, Shaliza. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. You are so welcome. And just want to introduce you, Faiza. So Faiza, from a young age, uh, Faiza's parents instilled a strong sense of volunteerism in herself and her two older brothers. They immigrated to Canada from Uganda in the early 70s and made a successful transition into Canadian life with the help of many generous volunteers. A volunteer herself from a very young age, she's been an advocate for volunteer engagement and excellence in volunteer management for over 20 years. As a facilitator for the Community Action Poverty Simulation, Faiza is passionate about equity and access amongst volunteers and leaders of volunteers. Faiza immigrated to the United States with her family in 2021. Now she serves as the Executive Director with the Council for Certification in Volunteer Administration and is an active member and volunteer with the Association for Leaders in Volunteer Engagement, ALIVE. She has been a CVA, Certified in Volunteer Administration, since 2016. In 2018, Faiza published one of her first children's books, I'm hoping there's more, entitled My Mama Wants to Eat Me Up. As a mother of two young boys, she has not actually eaten any of her children. Learn more about the Council for Certification in Volunteer Administration, with the link that we'll have in our show notes. Welcome again, Faiza. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and about the Council for Certification and Volunteer Administration. Well, thank you so much for having me, Shaliza. I think the way I would describe myself, you've done a great job with my bio, but first as a mom, uh, second as a member of community wherever I am. And I've been in volunteer engagement, so uh, working with organizations to involve volunteers in whatever whatever their mission is, whatever solution that they're trying to bring about for community. This is my 25th year doing that. Currently as the executive director for the Council for Certification and Volunteer Administration, what we do is we administer an international credential called the CVA, uh, Certification in Volunteer Administration, to people who do what I do, lead volunteers in organizations, whether that is something that they do in their paid job or whether that's something that they do themselves um, as a volunteer. And we've got uh, 1,100 CVAs all over the world. Wow, that's wonderful. And 25 years is quite a commitment. So I think that's very exciting. And, you know, in your bio, and and you've talked about this before, your family and your parents and two older brothers uh, immigrated to uh, from Uganda, rather, to Canada in the 70s. Can you tell me a little bit more about what role your family plays in terms of your interest and passion for volunteerism, and maybe how that's uh, impacted your work today or affected your work today? Yeah, I mean, it, it has underscored and is the reason why I am who I am today and why I have this career. So when my parents were forced to leave Uganda in 1972, you know, my mom was 25 years old. My dad was 25 years old. My mom was six months pregnant with my uh, oldest brother, Karim. And, you know, they came to Canada. And really, there was a small Ismaili Muslim community here already in Canada and a lot of volunteers um, in Toronto, Canada, where they first settled, 
that made that transition from East Africa uh, to Canada a little bit smoother for them. And for my parents, you know, they grew up in a culture and a tradition where volunteerism was also a part of their way of life, but also volunteerism was uh, very deeply intertwined with their faith expression as Ismailis. And so I grew up with my mom being one of the first female Boy Scout leaders in Canada, seeing them volunteer through the Ismaili Volunteer Corps, and then also just always seeing them take on this role, even with when they sort of were a little bit more established in Canada, being a host family to other newcomer families coming to Canada. So this idea of service is something um, that they modeled for me, right? And it's something that I that I was lucky enough to fall into and also become a volunteer. And also when volunteer opportunities would come my way, those were things I would naturally gravitate towards as well, because, you know, that representation was there. I had seen so much of that. But along with that, you know, along with that came certain ideas and certain biases around volunteerism, which I had to really learn to rethink, you know, and I had to unlearn in some ways, and I'm still trying to do. So uh, there is in volunteerism, you know, this idea of hierarchies, this idea of who is able to serve and help and who is who are the people that you're serving and that you're helping, right? So in my parents' example, you know, a lot of the volunteer work that they did, it was for the betterment of the Ismaili community, you know? So it was about the day-to-day functioning of the Jamaat Khana or the mosque, the place where we would go to pray. Um, not only just pray, but it was kind of like our community center where we would go to learn, where we would go to pray, where you would have uh, all kinds of events, marriages, all kinds of different celebrations. Um, and so their volunteer service in that way was was linked to that way. But it's also very exclusionary, right? Only Smileys can volunteer and you're volunteering for each other. And it's only been very lately that the Smiley community has really has really changed their perspective on that. And as and they always have, but even more so now and even more intentionally now, where Ismailis come together and work on behalf of locally the communities that they support. But all of that just to say that there are a lot of ideas around volunteerism that I internalized. And then as I started to work in the field of volunteer engagement as a professional uh, volunteer engagement leader, I started to see that some of those biases and some of the assumptions that I had around who gets to volunteer, who do you volunteer on behalf of or for, and who's centered in volunteerism, I really had to start, I was uncomfortable with a lot of the things that I was seeing and really had to start challenging some assumptions that I had around service, um, helping and who the helper and the helpy are. That's really interesting that you say that and that, that kind of, that knowledge that kind of came to be because sometimes when we're in the volunteerism role, whether we're volunteering or receiving the support, we don't always think about that. So tell me a little bit more about that. Who does actually get to be a volunteer? Uh, what did you learn in that experience? And I'm so glad you asked that question because I don't think we ask that question enough. Like who actually gets to volunteer? When we're thinking about volunteerism, a lot of the times it's like, we need you. We can't do it without you. There's these messages um, of out of, and they're positioned kind of out of fear and out of guilt. And there's a little bit of saviorism in there when we are recruiting volunteers, right? And then when we are appreciating our volunteers, right? We talk about them as superheroes, like we couldn't do it without you. You, you know, you're the heart and the soul of, of what we do. And we completely leave out the reason why we need volunteers to begin with, right? And so for a lot of under-prioritized communities, 
they are put in a position where they have to go to organizations for resources that they need, very basic resources that they need. Um, and oftentimes it's volunteers who are charged with delivering those resources or have a role to play. So when you ask who gets to volunteer, it's a complicated question. When volunteerism is formal in the way that, um, you know, in my career, I have led volunteers. Usually you're you're working with people Monday to Friday, nine to five, right? Or you're working within a physical structure like a hospital. And so who gets to volunteer are people who have access to time Monday to Friday, nine to five. So when you think about who doesn't, students, um, families, working parents, anyone who's in school, anyone who's working during that time, they don't get to volunteer for those types of organizations because they don't have that extra time during Monday to Friday, nine to five. And then when you think about volunteers who have to physically be present somewhere at a hospital, um, in a school building, uh, wherever, it, wherever it might be, in a hospice, in a shelter, again, you need to physically have proximity to those locations. You need to physically be able to get yourself there. Physically, you need to be able-bodied enough to navigate uh, a physical space that hopefully is inclusive of your needs, right? So then again, you think about who has access to those spaces and who can volunteer. But beyond that, when you think about who is leading volunteers and who are the people that are doing the asking and who are doing the recruiting, people like me, you need to then think about who those people are. And you know, one of the conversations that's happening in industries all around the world is what are we comprised of, right? Who are we made of? And when you think about volunteerism, we know that over 85% of people who lead volunteers are women. And we know that over 80% of those are white women and they have post-secondary education. So when you think about, and, and I'm not represented of that group, and I'll talk a little bit about what that's like to be in, the, in a sector where you aren't represented. But when you think about that group of people, you know, and I'll, and I'll tell you that the community of leaders of volunteers are, are some of the most compassionate people I've ever worked with. And I'm so proud to work on behalf of with the CCVA. But there's limited proximity to experience when you are such a homogenous group, right? And so you start to recruit people who look like you, who think like you, who feel like you do. You're also in the not-for-profit sector in general, working with a deficit of resources and time, um, funds. And so you are going to be recruiting for the people that are easiest to recruit, the people who are available the Monday nine to five, or the people who are are, it's where it's easy for them to access your facility when your facility is open. Um, you're not necessarily looking for, and when you ask about who gets to volunteer, my mind always goes to who doesn't get to volunteer, but you're not necessarily looking for who has the best ability, who has the most and most relevant lived experience to support the community that you're there on behalf of, right? And that you're there to work on behalf of and alongside of. You may also not have any proximity or lived experience with that community. There's very few job descriptions in the 25 years that I've been in not-for-profit that have ever asked me for lived experience with the mission that I'm working with, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's underemployment, whatever, whatever the issue is. I've never been asked, do you also have any lived experience with the community that you're going to be supporting? Um, and the same is true. So that, so that's, 
tells you a little bit about who maybe the staff are at organizations. But the same is true when we recruit volunteers. Very rarely are we asking a volunteer in a cancer support agency, you know, your lived experience as somebody who has been a caregiver of a person with cancer or your lived experience as a survivor of cancer is a prerequisite for this role. So those are the, you know, those are the kinds of questions and things that our profession is, is really taking a hard look at right now. And one of the other roles that I have in 2024 is I'm a co-principal investigator with Arizona State University and AmeriCorps, who's funded some research called uh, the Assessing Diversity and Equity in Volunteer Involvement Study. And that's what we're looking at, right? We're looking at who leads volunteers, who gets to volunteer, who doesn't get to volunteer. Um, how do we support those efforts? Um, and how do we make it so that access and equity when it comes to volunteers always at the forefront so that anybody feels welcome um, to volunteer and able to volunteer as well. Absolutely. I think that's so important. And I, I just wanted to share, you know, I remember when I was in the beginning of my job search after university. And at that time, the big push was that you need to volunteer first in order to get a job. It's about who you know, how much time you have. And you talked about hospitals. A lot of my friends who wanted to go into any sort of medical profession, even if it's health administration, had to have some sort of hospital experience. But that means that you have to be able to work uh, without, a, without a paycheck, right? So like you said, there has to be some sort of financial component there. And I really liked how you talked about access because when I've worked with organizations, um, many folks don't have access to bus passes. Um, they're very far away from organizations. So how do we think about that, right? And I think, you know, and when we think about volunteerism as a prerequisite to getting a job or getting a foot in the door, if you will, we have to also kind of think about who does that limit, right? And who may not be able to financially, physically, for whatever reason, be able to volunteer in order to get those connections and those networks or that work experience, right? That's so important. There's a couple of things like that you mentioned there. So one is like volunteerism is not free. Like some people think about like, oh, if we have volunteers and we don't have to hire people to do certain work, right? And if that's the, if that's kind of where you're operating from, then then access and equity and volunteerism is obviously not a priority for your organization, right? If you're thinking of volunteers simply as free labor, because volunteerism isn't free. Just like you said, you do need to be able to get yourself somewhere. So whether it's like your mileage or your parking costs, and like for me coming from a city like Toronto, um, where I grew up, like you know, it's exorbitant parking prices, right? And so I know some of our volunteers were paying sometimes $20, $25 every time they were doing a volunteer shift, plus whatever mileage or wherever they were coming from. But also, if you think about even you, Shaliza, in your stage of life right now, right? If you wanted to volunteer, it would involve uh, probably childcare for your child, right? Um, taking time off of your work as an entrepreneur, who's replacing your wage at that time, right? So, um, and then your your physical transportation getting there, it's not free, right? It, people are giving up more than just their time when they're volunteering. And it's easier for some to do that. And those are the people that you usually find volunteering. It's harder for others to do that. And so people will select themselves out of volunteering or it's just not something that they can do. And the other thing that comes to mind for me is like when you talked about when you graduated, people were saying, you know, to get your foot in the door, do some volunteerism. It's something that newcomers, especially in Canada, face as well, right? When As soon as you get to the Canadian border and you're processing all of your newcomer information, there's a package that you receive, like a welcome package. 
And in it, it'll say, you know, volunteerism is a great way to learn how to speak English, if that's something that you're going to be doing as a newcomer to Canada. It's a great way to build your network, make friends. And so volunteerism is presented in that way as a way to integrate into society. It's an amazing way to do that. And a lot of people do that. And I actually think that's a great, that's, that's actually a great component of volunteerism is that it does allow you to do those kinds of things. But again, you're only able to do that because you're using it as a means to do something else. It's very transactional. Um, it's And especially for you and your example as a student, it was to get a foot in the door. But what we're seeing is that's, that's even happening in our post-secondary system um, through this idea of taking courses and paying tuition to, to anyone who's in university who's listening to this, you know, think about the fact that you're paying a university tuition because they're telling you that you need to do a volunteer placement or an internship or a co-op placement, whatever it's called, in an organization to get a certain amount of hours of experience. What happens on the flip side of that, and I don't think a lot of people know that, is that organizations have to then take on these students. They're not receiving any bit of that tuition. So they're not receiving any part of that tuition that the university or the college is taking. And their staff are then taking on students, um, doing all of the administration that goes there, taking all of the insurance risk, um, all of that that it takes to integrate a person into their organization to volunteer. And it's always for a fixed amount of time. And it's also very transactional, right? Um, so there's there are all these systems at play that place volunteerism in a way that it's a means to an end or that it's something that's very transactional. And when you think about at the heart of it, why people want to volunteer, you know, almost everyone who wants to volunteer wants to do so because they want to make their community a better place. Um, they want to see the needle move in terms of eradicating poverty, right? Or working with a community um, where they have uh, some some lived experience and wanting to heal something that's in there. But the way that we position volunteerism is in that transactional way. And the way that we talk about volunteers as saviors, we kind of dilute that message and we forget the community completely. Like even for us right now in our conversation, we've hardly ever talked about like, what's the benefit to the community to have volunteers partner with them in the end, right? So we completely center the volunteer or we center the organization and we completely forget um, who the volunteer is. And these are the kinds of things that the Adevi research that I mentioned um, that I'm a part of that we're trying to really unpack and think about. But it's also within our field as leaders of volunteers, you know, this is something that leaders of volunteers are also trying to unlearn. And we talk about decolonizing our minds. There is this colonization um, mindset in volunteerism as well. And this idea and very much it's done subconsciously, but there are so many characteristics of white supremacy culture that are at play in how we ask for volunteers, how we integrate volunteers into the work, how we appreciate them, how we even say goodbye to volunteers. All of those things are so, they're very underpinned with characteristics of white supremacy culture that many of us are working so hard to understand and to unlearn and to disrupt and figure out how do we do it differently? How do we do a service to the community in a way that doesn't, you know, inflict further harm on them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as someone who loves to volunteer when I, when I used to have a bit more time and I can really see that transactional approach. And I recall being in a, a big event that has like an interview process and a training process for volunteers. I remember thinking, 
looking around all these volunteers and at that in this in this particular event there are people from all you know backgrounds and all ages but thinking you know right now we're all wearing this shirt but there's a story behind each and every one of us and that being so interesting and being able to think about that but you're very right you know it, it tra- volunteerism can be very transactional and there can be this hierarchy right and as well we talked about who gets to volunteer and so you've talked about white supremacy and white saviorism a little bit for our listeners maybe who don't know how that plays into volunteerism can you tell us a little bit about what white saviorism is and how it affects the volunteer space? Absolutely, Shaliza. White saviorism and white supremacy culture show up in volunteerism 100%. And and, and I'm going to say that it doesn't show up everywhere in volunteerism because there's a lot of mutual aid volunteerism and there's a lot of grassroots volunteerism that happens without the presence of a formal not-for-profit or a structure in place. Um, where you probably won't see some of these things, right? It's 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 literally there's somebody needs a drive somewhere, somebody needs some groceries. There, there's a community that needs to rally around something. We're going to march. We're going to protest. I w- I really want to be clear that I don't see a lot of these characteristics showing up in those uh, grassroots, community-driven type volunteerism. What I'm talking about is volunteerism within formal structures, within charitable organizations within not-for-profits, right? So the way that this is, what saviorism looks like and the way that it shows up and what it is, is this idea that uh, the volunteer or the organization is the antidote to the community's issues, right? And so it's looking at the community has an issue, we can come in and, and we can fix the problem. And what happens is you forget what the actual problem is and you don't focus on how the problem came to be. And usually the problem is personified by that community. So the community is the problem, not the issues and the systems that got us to a place where people are underprioritized, right? And then need to rely on others for resources. So that's that saviorism is that like, you know, I work at X organization and we can fix it. We can put an end to X, whatever it is. And you'll always see, uh, you know, if you look at different charitable organizations, it's like, help us you help us put an end to something. The community is nowhere in the mission or the the statements or or the um, impetus behind what that organization is doing. How does it show up in volunteerism? So there's uh, different characteristics. And if anyone wants to sort of understand this better, Tema Okun has done some amazing work in talking about what the characteristics of white supremacy culture are. And and, um, there's somebody to do a little bit more in-depth research on, but like very quickly... Things like individualism, it's a characteristic of white supremacy culture, and how it shows up in volunteerism is things like when we give volunteers awards, right, for the most number of hours or the most years of service, right, um, and we uh, put a lot of emphasis or we recognize one individual for the work that they've done versus a collective or a collaborative or how did a community shift the health and outcomes of another community. And we see that individualism in the workplace as well, right? Like we see that there are years of service that we applaud people for, right? Or the uh, how, what's the most that somebody was able to do. So we see that everywhere and we see that in volunteerism as well. Another characteristic, for example, that comes up is this idea of quantity over quality, right? And if you ask leaders of volunteers, what are the metrics and what are the goals that they have as leaders of volunteers? They'll tell you it's usually we have a goal of a certain number of volunteers um, or a certain number of volunteer hours that we have to hit every year. 
And I'll tell you that in 25 years of working with volunteers, it doesn't matter the number of volunteers or the number of volunteer hours. That doesn't have a direct correlation um, with community outcomes, right? We still haven't been able to find a, a cure for cancer, right? We still haven't fixed poverty. And in fact, it's getting worse and worse, right? And we have other types of poverty. So it, it, it doesn't matter how many volunteers there are and, and how many hours that they do. But when you're a leader of volunteers and you're fixed on that, you're just going to be trying to get more and more people through the door. Again, you're not thinking about the community and you're not thinking about what it takes to actually move the needle in community outcomes. It's a capitalist idea, right? That capitalist idea of productivity and, and you're measured also and it's a system, right? Because that volunteer manager is probably also graded, for, for lack of a better word, yeah. on how many volunteers they can get Absolutely. and how many people they can push out the door. And this organization has X number of volunteers, right? So you're right. It's, it's not centering the community and the impact. It's centering what's the impact or what's the productivity of X organization. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so a lot of people who are interested in equity work are thinking about unpacking this in, in the work that they do, whether it's through, you know, through employment in, we know that in our colleagues in human resources are trying to do this as well. It's happening in volunteerism as well. And always has, right. Even when you talked about your example of wearing a uniform, right? Like um, we're all wearing the same t-shirt, essentially you're all wearing a uniform to identify you as a volunteer, but when you have to wear a uniform to identify as a volunteer, again, you got to think about what's that for, right? It, for example, if you're if it's the safety of you're going into someone's home to deliver service, that's great. That that lets the person know whose home you're going into. It's a it's a little bit of an assurance to them. They've got the uniform on, you know, then they're, they're the person that was supposed to be sent to me. The same way we would think about if a police officer approaches you and they're in the uniform, right? Um, but again, it is still separating you. It's creating this otherness between the person who is doing the helping and the person that is receiving the help. I would like to talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. This idea, yeah, absolutely. Of, yeah. So this is something that I've felt for a really long time, just as someone who's been on the receiving end of help, but also someone who has, you know, been the orchestrator, right, the conductor of helping others. And uh, my colleague Brianna Dorellis. She um, is incredible. She's doing a ton of work on volunteer engagement and how it uh, affects black communities, black and brown communities. And another person, Shaliza, you should have her on the podcast too. Um, but she talks about this idea of what it is like to be the person helping and what it is like to be the person getting the help. I can't eloquently say it as well as she does, but I'm going to give you an example from my own life, right? So, um, you know, being a mom is, is, is the number one thing that, that I'm the most proud of. And, you know, the thing that, that I do great, I do well. So I have two uh, boys uh, and my younger son was born three months premature. So we spent almost three months in the hospital, different hospitals with him, getting him ready to come home. And at the time I was a leader of volunteers, taking a break from work to be a mom. And I was in a situation where there were volunteers all around me in this hospital setting that were supporting me. Right. So one of the things that you're doing when you're trying to get your, your premature child home is you are so hyper-focused on them gaining weight. They need to eat to gain weight, to, to do lots of different things, get putting on weight, helps them to breathe, to lift their neck, to do all kinds of things. So you're hyper-focused on every gram, every milligram that they gain. So one day I'm in the, um, and I see you, the NICU with Malik and trying to feed him. And 
it's so unnatural because when he was born, he's being fed by a tube. And so he doesn't know how to, how to work for his food, for example, or learn how to eat um, like other babies do that are born like to term. So we're struggling trying to get him to eat. We're in this quiet space. We're trying to eat. And this volunteer comes like running up to us and like really loudly. She's like, hi, how are you? Can I help you today? And I got startled because I didn't know she was coming. Malik started crying. It like, you know, it disrupted the latch, the kind of the groove that we had going. And I was like, now I got to start all over again. And I kind of looked up at her and I was so irritated. And I was like, no, thank you. I was mad. I wasn't having it. Um, and, you know, she went off to the nurse's station and I could see her talking to like one of the nurses and uh, one of them came back to me and was like, is everything okay? Like you were kind of rude to that volunteer. And in my mind, I was like, I was rude to the volunteer. Like I was just like, what, you know, and I'm, I'm already vulnerable. Like I'm kind of disrobed here. I have my baby here. And I kind of looked at her and I said, it's not my job to make her comfortable. Like it's not my job to make sure she has a great volunteer experience. She's here to help me. And the way that she came in was not supportive and was not helpful at all, right? And this, Shaliza, was one of those people who was probably told you need to volunteer in a hospital to get some experience for whatever career you want to go into. This is probably who this volunteer was, right? The next day, the same thing was happening. I'm there again, um, same routine, trying to get Malik to eat, so focused on those grams. And I look up at the nursing station and I see a different volunteer and she just looks at me and she just goes like that. She's letting me know that she's there and that's it. That volunteer is somebody who was a former NICU nurse. So she knew she could see very well just by looking at what I'm doing. She could see what I was doing and she could see that she wanted to let me know that she was there if I needed support, but that wasn't the time for her to come over and interrupt what we were doing the way that she cared for me was to just let me know I'm there and to let me do what I was doing. And so there's me who needs to be helped. And then there are these two helper examples, right? So the first volunteer who's totally excited and enthusiastic and how can I help you centering themselves and their need to volunteer and their need to help. And then there's the second volunteer who is centering me knows that they can help me and support me. But also if they can't, it's not a big deal. That's not what they're there for. They're there for me before they're there for their own gratification and their own sense of doing good or giving back. And so being on the other side of that for me was like a huge, it was a huge kind of aha moment for me of what it's like to be the person recruiting the helpers. And then what it's like to sit in the seat of the person that's being helped. And it really shifted my perspective on when I'm placing volunteers in the community, what emphasis, right? Or what value am I placing on lived experience? So if I was the volunteer coordinator for that NICU, every single volunteer that was going to be in the NICU in that way would either need to have some kind of training on what the parents are doing in there or have some kind of lived experience to know that you don't approach a mom while she's trying to feed her baby. Like you, you just know that that's not something that you do. And yeah, that one example just really helped me to, to understand how important that is versus who's available on Tuesday at 10 p.m. that could volunteer. I need to fill this shift, right? There's such a difference there in the approach to recruiting the volunteers and also to the screening that you do around volunteers. What are you looking for in terms of their qualifications beyond are they just available? But I'm sure that that volunteer coordinator as well had those targets to meet. I have to have X amount of volunteers who do X amount of hours. And so they're trying to balance that. 
And it's that altruism piece where I'm thinking about the parallels to allyship and a lot of volunteers want to be allies, right? And like you said, you know, hitting these goals and targets and, you know, even, you know, when I was in the hospital um, delivering Mila, just the the statements that were made by a lot of nurses, like, you know, we're, we have budget cuts and funding cuts and we're low staff and sometimes all these pressures which are systemic right end up trickling down and so we can often lose sight of what it is we're doing and who we're doing it for and and when you're delivering your child you don't want to be hearing that like that is harmful for a mom who's in that stage right yeah yeah i mean it was it was postpartum but it was, it was funny because it was just about the supplies and about how now you have to pay for supplies because of the government funding and it was just like i had a little chuckle about it but then i went and got the free supplies from another nurse you know yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it also reminds me. You know, talked about decolonizing the volunteer space, and I know I've had a lot of conversations with folks about this, and I might have even shared this one quote for you. But it's about asking how I can help the community, and it's about doing the work with the community, right? Not telling them what they need, um, but also asking, like, do you need help? Not assuming that I am the one who can help you, right? Like that volunteer. Does she know how to feel? Like, how do we know that she knew how to help you? She was sort of assuming that she has the tools to support you. Whereas the one waving was like, I'm here. I'm part of your community. When you need me, you approach me. And I think that's what's happening in so many of our vulnerable communities right now is sort of like a a forced approach rather than a, hi, I'm here. Let me know what you need. Because we have this, as humans, we have this innate need to help or fix, especially in the Western world. So it's kind of rethinking that, right? And decolonizing our thinking around helping, volunteering, al- al- allyship, um, altruism, all of that piece. So I'm really glad that you shared this story with us. So thank you for that. And you don't you don't want to lose that human aspect, right? Because even my kids, right, Shliza, if we are walking down the street and we pass somebody who appears homeless, right? My son will always say, like, should we do something to help them, right? Do, do we have any extra? He'll be like, do we, can we give them some money? Do we have any extra food? And I'll always say to them, like, they haven't asked us for help, and we shouldn't assume that they need our help. We don't know, right? Or they might make a statement, and they're kids, they, and they know what I do for a living. Like, they, we, talk, we have these conversations all the time. But even from such a young age, there's, a, there's this idea that, I have the answer or I can help or I can do something. And I do think that that's just the human, that's just us as humans. And that is just our need to want to not see people suffer, right? And to want to help people or to think that we know what is um, a good way to live and that others should do that. And it starts with kids because even my kids will will notice and will say something like that. And it's in those moments where I like I disrupt that and I'm like, that person could be perfectly happy right there and that's where they want to be. And unless they ask us for some help, we can see if we are the people that would be the ones to give them that help. We may not even be the right people to be able to offer help at all, but we can't assume that they need something. We can't assume, first of all, that they're unhappy, that they need something or that we are better off or that we have something um, to offer them. And these are like all these conversations that have to happen. Another thing that I think of, right, is I think of the volunteer who goes into, for example, the food pantry or the food bank, right? They go in, they like prepare food, they're talking to people, you know, they're they're doing all of that. They're in close proximity, right? But then uh, on the weekend, they go watch a show downtown and as they're leaving the theater, there's somebody that's asking for money outside and they kind of just shuffle by and they walk by them. 
there's this attitude again, that when you're in a space, and again, Brianna is someone who articulated this so well for us is that when you're in this space where you have the power to help, you're so much more comfortable. So when you're the volunteer in that food pantry um, and you're able to help that person, you're still the volunteer in a position of power and authority. So you're comfortable, right? Being the person that helps. You feel good about being the person that helps. But when you're the citizen walking down the street and that same person or somebody in those same um, circumstances is asking you for help, all of a sudden they're a threat, right? All of a sudden they're dangerous or there's somebody that you don't want to be near because you're not in a volunteer space in that moment. You're not wearing the uniform, right? They're not behind a glass. You're not serving them food. You don't have that authority and you don't have that power. And all of us need to think about that. Like we need to think about why do we feel good when we're volunteering, right? Why don't we feel good when somebody is asking us for help and it's not in a structured space, it's just on the street, outside the grocery store, um, or when we're on our way to work or when we're sitting on the subway? What makes us feel scared in those moments versus when we feel good in those other moments? So, so thinking about it in that way. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's like, what do you do when no one's watching, right? And what are the yeah. biases that creep up? And I think that's something that I see a lot. Um, in spaces and places, or my clients have said to me, you know, this is what's happening in, in the workplace, is that when we're in a place of safety, right, with our perceived safety, how do we act when we're in a contained space and place? And I even see that with conversations that people have around EDI in general, right? So I think that's so important. And that leads me to like another question I have is when we think about systems of oppression, there is this uh, idea of white supremacy and white supremacy for those folks listening isn't only about white folks, right? It impacts everybody. It's a system. It's, it's a system that's rooted in oppression. And this system, because of this kind of idea of, you know, saviorism as well, makes it difficult for folks who are marginalized to access certain spaces. And so for me, another aspect of volunteerism I want to ask you about is how does white supremacy culture show up in volunteerism? And back to the idea of, you know, marginalized folks accessing those spaces. Yeah. So we talked about individualism as one of those characteristics. We talked about uh, quantity over quality um, as one of those things. Another way that it shows up is just uh, and this idea of paternalism, I think that's how I would put it, This, the, which is another characteristic of white supremacy culture is this idea of paternalism. And we've touched on it a little bit, but... Um, when you are recruiting for volunteers, right, a lot of organizations will use fear and they'll use guilt as recruitment tax tactics, right? So they'll say stuff like, they have nothing, we need you, right? So there's this othering that happens. They is the community we're supporting and we is the organization. We are the antidote. We are the solution to the community's problem. Join us. We need you, Right. We're seeing it a lot right now too, Shaliza, when we're looking at sort of what's going on just globally in the world, right? Everyone is reposting and tweeting and resharing horrific images of what's happening in Gaza right now. And there's a lot of that, that a lot of that language shows up in there, right? Where we're, we are, we are portraying a whole population of people, um, rightly so as suffering in need. Um, and there are certain people who have the solutions, right? And what we've done is, when we, when we have messages of that that happen, we've disenfranchised people who actually have a say and who actually have a voice and who can actually do something by saying, this person has the solution or this person is at, is at fault and these are the people that need the help. But what about everybody in between, of which there are way more many of all of us 
who are in between who can actually do something other than retweeting or reposting or being upset, right? Like, what about all of us? What could we be doing? And this is this is where I find volunteerism that happens outside of where these systems and structures take place are way more effective, right? That's where you get marches and protests and voices in the street. No one needs to do a background check or a police check to show up with the sign and march. Nobody needs to go through an interview process, have social capital in the form of references to be able to show up and express themselves in that way. All of those things, when you take volunteerism into like these formal structures are ways in which we keep people out, right? So if you're, if you need to have a police check to volunteer, if you need to have three references to volunteer, you're automatically discluding people that don't have that social, that don't have that social capital, who don't have work experience or references that they can call upon through no fault of their own, right? You're automatically excluding people who may have some kind of criminal activity. Uh, and, and we know that racialized communities, for example, are more prone to have that, right? Because we know in policing and in most communities, we know that racialized communities are the ones who police are usually called on behalf of or because of, right? And so we see that the, if you're somebody who maybe does have a criminal history or or doesn't even, is just a person of interest or was just questioned, and it's something that's going to show up on your record, and that's what's required for you to volunteer for a community that you love or are a part of, you're not going to put in an application to volunteer there. Like already there's a barrier for you to volunteer there. If you go to a volunteer website and you look at um, what they say and there's language on there that says, we couldn't do it without you. This community has nothing. Help us help them. And you are part of the them. How is that going to make you feel about yourself, the way that you're being portrayed in messaging? And are you going to want to volunteer for that organization? I'm not. So this paternalism that shows up and how we, uh, the language that we use when we're talking about volunteers is something, again, that that creates those barriers, right? And then it, again, it it's further marginalizes people so that they're not going to be the ones who, who say, I, I want to come out and help. And I think also part of white supremacy is that internalized racism, those internal uh, stereotypes that can emerge, right? And I think oftentimes when volunteer organizations that are not grassroots, like you talked about, are formed, it's not often in community to say, like, what is it that, what, that the community wants and needs? And how do we create that? And that's why I think, to your point, a lot of the grassroots communities actually um, have more strength in terms of what they're doing because there are no limitations, right? They're actually born out of community. And to your point, again, about, you know, you have to have that experience or some sort of connection to the work, uh, even if it's not formal, but if it's training or have been experienced and exposed to a community rather than just speaking on behalf of that community, which is really that white saviorism, that white supremacy that I know better because of X, Y, and Z. And I see that a, a, a lot, right? You know, age and education um, or social status, like you said, or social capital are kind of those pieces that are used, right? And that leads me kind of to the next question, which you've kind of already answered in, in many of our responses, but thinking about this access to becoming a, a, a volunteer and the emphasis that's placed on lived experience when recruiting volunteers. So how do we, why is this the case? And how do we move away from this, uh, you know, to, re to restrict those barriers, to remove those barriers you talked about in terms of criminal checks or permanent residence or uh, references? 
how do we kind of remove those barriers and provide more of an access to folks who want to volunteer? I think it's happening. Like it's it, unfortunately, it took the murder of George Floyd to to spark a lot of these conversations, and because it was in the middle of the pandemic and a lot of not-for-profits were kind of at a standstill and shut down. They were forced to look at this, right? And they were forced to have these conversations. It's slowly happening. So I think what I'm, what I'm seeing happening and what I'm so encouraged by um, amongst my colleagues in volunteer um, engagement is that that's happening, right? People are taking a look back at why are we asking the questions we're asking when we're recruiting volunteers? What messaging are we using when we're recruiting volunteers? What are sort of those min specs that are required when it comes to volunteerism, right? Can we rethink when people can volunteer and how people can volunteer, right? So there's this more of an appetite and this more of a less of a risk uh, mindset when it comes to, for example, virtual volunteering, right? Does someone have to do what they, what we need them to do at our site? Is there somewhere else they could do it that makes it easier for them to do it or opens opens up who's able to volunteer if we don't make it at a physical location, for example. And people are really looking at this idea of lived experience as um, what emphasis are we going to place on lived experience in the work that we do, right? Because at the end of the day, we don't want to further harm the community that we're supposed to be there for, right? They should be telling us what they need, and we should be able to respond appropriately. I think what's also happening, and I think what is going to be the most effective is involving the community that you serve in all aspects of all of the work that you do. So from in a hierarchical organization, that means when you're doing your strategic planning as an organization, where is the community voice and input into into the solutions uh, that community is putting forward for what they need? We don't know what, you know, I, I don't know in some of the organizations that I've worked with. I worked for a breast cancer organization. I've never had breast cancer. I don't know what a survivor of breast cancer needs, but I'll tell you that I had goals that told me I needed to have this many volunteers and this many hours. So that's what I work towards, right? But I think a lot of people are now understanding where they have done further harm and are and are understanding what they need to do differently. So centering the community that you serve, involving them in all aspects um, of what you do. One of the most powerful things I think leaders of volunteers can do and, and whoever's listening, whatever it is, the stage of work that you're doing, have the community that you serve read your materials and ask them questions like, how does it make you feel? How are you positioned and portrayed in our materials? Does that make you feel good, right? Is it an accurate portrayal? And if someone is giving you feedback on how you can change that, listen and change it and then see who starts coming through the door, right? Asking the community that you serve things like, where could we recruit volunteers um, that could best serve you? When you've worked with volunteers in the past, what's worked well? What hasn't? What do you wish this person brought to the table that they have aren't um, that they haven't brought in the past and incorporating everything that you're hearing the community tell you into your planning going forward and then see, you know, how does that change your messaging? How does that change your recruitment style? Uh, who you ask and where you ask and then giving it time, right? To see, cause you, you can't just change it all and say, okay, we're going to listen to the community. Now how come nobody's coming in? It takes time to rebuild your reputation, to mend fences that you've broken or trampled on, right? So giving yourself then the time to see who slowly starts to trust you and then come through the door and say, yeah, we're, we're here to help and be part of the part of the solution as well. You no, know, I love that. And I think it, it's so important to take time. And I think a lot of organizations want to rush, but it's important to take time. And then the only thing I'll add is 
I often think it's so important to provide some sort of honoraria, right, for folks to share pieces of them, and even for volunteers, right, um, and for community members that are that are engaging. How do we appreciate their time um, so that so that it because it isn't free both for the volunteer and for the community member who's participating. So I think that's really great ways that we can increase that equity and access. Now you did mention that the volunteer administration and volunteer management sector is predominantly white women. Any thoughts on how we can increase the diversity amongst professional leaders of volunteers? Yeah, it's happening so slowly, Shaliza. It's happening. I'm going to say that in, in communities like Toronto, for example, which are already so diverse, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily look that way in Toronto, for example, but there are a lot of people who are starting to retire. We have a, we have a huge baby boomer cohort in our sector, as and that's not unique to us. It's happening everywhere, right? But there are a lot of people who are intentionally saying, I want to mentor somebody that I never thought I was, I would never have thought of to mentor before, you know, or I want to, I want to be intentional in my recruitment, even of who my staff are going to be, right? What lived experience do my staff have, right? What skills do my staff have? That I think is going to be so much slower. It's going to be a lot slower for, for many reasons. One is that our field is not one that's well known, right? There isn't necessarily a collegial sort of path to get there, right? That you go to school and then you do X and then you get this degree and then you do Y. A lot of people fall into volunteer engagement or they're with they're in an organization in a different role and that role becomes open. There's a ton we have to do in terms of recognition of the field. There's a ton our society has to do in terms of recognizing volunteers as well, right? It's slowly happening though. And I'm seeing a lot of our leaders of volunteers understanding their own biases and seeing where they have gaps in their proximity and really intentionally embodying what allyship is. And I even see a lot of people who once would call themselves allies and who would lead with that, like in their bios, for example, taking that out and understanding that ally is more than an intention. Being an ally and also being a volunteer and speaking on community, it's more than just the intention in your heart. It's actually the action that you take and what sacrifices are you going to make? What are you willing to give up on behalf of your community? So we see that. We have these conversations. I'm really encouraged by AmeriCorps and Arizona State University by investing in this research that we're doing. That's our second year of research in this in uh, thinking about diversity and equity and volunteer involvement. And it's all these little steps, you know, even doing a podcast like today and maybe hoping thinking about changing someone's idea of what their volunteerism is. Like, what does it mean to you to volunteer beyond feeling good about yourself? Are you actually moving the needle, right? Um, are you actually making a difference? All these little things that, you know, will, will bubble up and hopefully um, make a difference. And I hope that there are people who have lived experiences with different communities that can see that that volunteerism and leading volunteers is is a, is a part of equity work, right? And if that's something um, that you're passionate about, this is a, this is an avenue within which you can um, make a difference there. Absolutely, and I think that's so important. You know, um, especially removing that title of ally, right? I see a lot of people used to have that on their resumes and and, and things like that. So really moving away from just using words for words sake, I think is really key. So, you know, you've mentioned a little bit about it. Um, you mentioned a little bit about how we're moving towards diversity and inclusion. What is your vision, if you had a magic wand for the volunteer space in the next 20 years? It's going back to nature, right? And when you think about, um, I think you and I have talked about this, Shaliza, 
the more proximity that I have to Indigenous communities, the way that Indigenous communities lives is, I wish it's not something I had to unlearn and learn again, but there's so much beauty in the way that Indigenous communities live, not just as people, but in in understanding that the land is part of your community as well. Land is not something that where community happens on. Your land is part of your community. In Indigenous cultures, for many of them, there's no words for volunteerism. There's no actual word for volunteer. A community that is so tightly un- understanding of each other and so aware of each other's health, not just amongst people, but amongst the environment as well, so that when one part of it might be sick or when one part of it might be failing, the whole community comes to heal. That's my vision, right? We shouldn't have to have all these systems. I want to work myself out of a job. Like We should not have to have systems where people are invited to come in and help community. I would love for us to have a community that just sees where there is a help that's needed and where everyone comes to help. One of the silver linings for me during COVID and lockdown, you know, in Toronto and Ontario life was a lot of organizations had to stop volunteering altogether. And what I used to see and what I saw so much of, and it excited me was in my, in my apartment building, for example, there was like this Excel spreadsheet of like, who needs help? If you need help, sign up here. Who can help sign up here? There was no recruitment process. There was no nothing. There was just this person needs something. This person can help. That's it. There was no award ceremony for it. There was no tracking of hours. Hopefully there was no harm being done because there was no checking of risk. But at that time, it was just who needs help and who can fix it. I saw that in my apartment building. I saw that in my little community of St. Lawrence Market in Toronto. There was a St. Lawrence Market Facebook group. Who needs help, right? You just saw all of this mutual aid happening everywhere. And that to me was so beautiful, right? We saw that all of us were hurting. All of us were in a place of so much uncertainty. And there were people who were brave enough to say, like, I really need uh, this. And sometimes it wasn't, you know, something in relation to like your daily living, like help me get groceries or whatever. It was like, does anyone have these supplies that I need to make this, you know, fix this or make this work or my kid needs, you know? And so I remember in my apartment building, I need a Rubik's cube. And then I had 17 neighbors give me Rubik's, like say, I need, we have Rubik's cubes. We can give it to you. Right. Something as simple as that where people just wanted to help and to heal. So, so that's my vision, right. Is that we see, all of us as as one big system and also our earth as that as well and where it's where there is illness or where there is sickness or where there's ha- uh, any kind of help that's needed all of us heal it quickly and fast and then we get back to being healthy again that's beautiful it actually reminds me of the Haudenosaunee story of of turtle island and and of uh, mother earth or sky woman i should say i think covid definitely you know hard time for me too but that was definitely what came out of it, right? We really helped community and, and we didn't have any barriers or any uh, restrictions or any, like you said, uh, qualifications needed. So I, I think that's a beautiful story. And I think we can get there. We've done it before. We've seen the world come together during the pandemic. We can do that again. We just have to open ourselves up to it. So I think that's beautiful. So in your bio, I talked about a few things that I'd love to hear from you about. You're a published author of a children's book, and you're an entrepreneur of many sorts. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Tell our viewers a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think for me, part of uh, what keeps me excited about this work, right, is having other avenues to be creative, but also just other avenues to learn. So 
I told you a little bit about, about my son Malik, who was born premature. So my older son, when he was born, I was uh, he was born in like the dead of winter in downtown Toronto, and I was feeling super isolated. And I would sing to him, I would sing him this kind of refrain that ended in like "I'm going to eat you up" because a lot of a lot of parents I think can relate to this idea of like your baby being so cute and you just want to like nibble on their toes and stuff and eat them up. Um, and I had some two really good friends who would come and visit me all the time. At least once a week, they would come and visit me. And uh, it was so good for my mental health. But they were like, put this into a book, you know? And our idea was we were going to create this book called My Mama Wants to Eat You Up and give it to my son for his first birthday. And my friend was going to illustrate it. Um, but then fast forward to Malik being born. And my husband and I just really needed something else to focus on other than like a lot of hospital appointments and just to get through the trauma of that experience. And so we decided to put our energies into creating this book, My Mama Wants to Eat Me Up. And I love it because it, it, everything in my life I feel is so interconnected, but it opened me up to a whole new community, a whole new experience. It gave me empathy in a whole new community with a whole new experience, right? Um, be, being an author and being self-published and being an entrepreneur and, and, and thinking about what that's like, right? And I think, you know, for me, I'm very intentional about what I do outside of primary, like my first responsibility is my family, my two boys and my husband. Second is my extended family. Third is me and my health. And then it's, it's work, right? And anything else that's around that, like my businesses or where I volunteer all have to inform that and work together. So that book just came out of that personal need that I had to, to heal a part of myself as a mom and that time of my life. But it's this awesome book called My Mama Wants to Eat Me Up. It's not available anywhere right now because in the transition from being a self-published from Canada to the U.S., we kind of put that on the back burner for now. Um, but it'll be up again soon on Amazon. Um, and then I also have another business uh, called I Wrapped Them, which is at iwrappedthem.com. And it's nail polish wraps. And there's um, a lot of them that for me, I was missing a way to sort of um, express and be in touch with my identity as a South Asian um, Muslim, right? Especially moving to the U.S. into a community where that's not as accessible to me. Um, and so I created a whole bunch of nail designs that have like Banarsi and Bandni and Mendi patterns. And for me, again, it's a way to be part of and be in touch with that part of my community, learn something new about e-commerce. Um, and I bring all of those lessons, you know, into my research work and into my into my career as well. So thanks for asking. I love that. And I, I saw your email a little bit late, but I love the the art designs that are coming up for the season. Super cute. Um, I've got really long natural nails right now. I've got to cut them and try my wraps. So I got to just sit down. Once, once I conquer it, I know I can do it. It's just getting my mind into it, but it looks so easy. So I'm excited about that. And I love that you tell us about your priorities because we have to set boundaries. That's part of, you know, what white supremacy tells us not to do, but we have to set those boundaries. And I, and I love that you have something that you, brings you joy on the side. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does bring me joy. And I, and I want to say, I love that you in your podcast talk about joy because this equity work is really hard and can be hard on the heart. And it kind of breaks my heart when I see people who do this work and then leave this work because they burn out or it's too much, it becomes too much or it becomes re-traumatizing or it becomes harmful. And I think that even if you're in that position where you're trying to embody allyship, 
you have to find joy in your life, right? And you have to tap into that. And sometimes it's even like intentionally seeking and, and striving for it, right? And carving out time for the things that make you feel happy because those are the things that help refocus and prioritize for you while you're doing this work. But also at times, you know, those are the things that you recognize in others. We live in a world right now, we talk about all of these systems, but we live in this world right now where we're so good at making categories, right? We're so good at othering people and we're so good at seeing what we have and what maybe somebody else doesn't have. And when you have these experiences to build joy, you start to see that you know, joy is something that anybody can access. Anybody can access joy regardless of what their salary is, right? Regardless of what their social capital is. If you're thinking about equity work, start to think about the communities that you're passionate about and start to think about joy in those communities um, first before what's lacking or what the deficits are. Look at all the assets that people bring and look at all the sources of joy that people have. I, I have to say that in all of my years of focusing on equity work, communities that are positioned as having less than are often communities that have, they have it nailed when it comes to finding what joy is and expressing joy. And they do that better than anybody else. And I, and even when I say they, I'm othering them when I'm talking about that. But I just have to say that there is something to this idea of understanding what brings you joy. Um, even that for some people is hard, but just making space for it, navigating towards it and recognizing joy in other people too. And keeping that for the forefront of our mind, our listeners, uh, how do you find joy and how do you put it into your work? Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share or speak about? No, not at all. But just, you know, if people are interested in learning more about the CVA credential, our website is cvacert.org. Um, and if people are interested in the um, research that we're doing on assessing diversity and equity in volunteer inclusion, you'll find that on the research section of uh, that website as well. Thank you, Shaliza. You're welcome. And how can folks that are listening find out and learn more about you, about your book, about your nail wraps? Yeah, uh, well, iwrappedthem.com is for the nail wraps. And find me, find me on LinkedIn. You know, I love having... Uh, these conversations, I'm always open to learning, you know, so challenge me if there's something uh, that you want to talk about a little bit more that we talked about on this on this podcast or something you want to unpack. Like that's how I learn as well. I don't have all of the answers. And I love talking to people about equity and access to volunteerism. So I'm on LinkedIn, FISA, F-A-I-Z-A or Z-A if you're in the U.S. and Venzant, V-E-N. Z-A-N-T. Thank you so much, Faiza. And we'll put that all in the show notes for everybody so they'll have the links. Uh, thank you again for spending your time with us this morning. We really appreciate you joining us on uh, today's episode 19. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in to Creative Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on our uh, website and subscribe at creativeleadership.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And stay connected with us on Instagram at Creative Leadership. And if you know someone else could be a great guest on our show, please do let us know. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next time on Curated Conversations.